0: To your brain it is not a virtual reality it is your actual reality
1: medieval crimes are being committed i come with clean hands
2: victims of horrific crimes want justice we don't
3: have anything better than this this is asymmetrical haircuts your international justice podcast with janet anderson and stephanie van this episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net
1: All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Just a few years ago, we were talking about how social media evidence uh, can be useful in court and is increasingly being used in court.
4: Yeah, I can remember we did a great podcast with Yvonne McDermott-Reese and with Carolina all about social media and how it gets used. But I know today we're going to concentrate on a new type of evidence, a different type that's also beginning to slowly enter international courtrooms. We're talking about digital reconstruction models. Um, and I've been noticing more and more organizations using them as ways of kind of mocking up spaces and and show the real physicality of, of things like prisons.
1: Yeah, and at last year's annual ICC's uh, Assembly of State Parties, there was a side event which included uh, virtual reality models. The installation was hosted by the Office of the Prosecutor and it was labeled VR as a tool for advancing accountability for international crimes. Now, Janet, have you ever tried VR or this installation?
4: I have to say, I haven't actually. Um, I do know that I've, I've worked alongside people who are using VR for advocacy purposes um, and showing people what's actually going on on the ground. I'm absolutely less sure what it would mean inside the courtroom, how that would work.
1: I've seen some VR, but I've only seen it more in the gamification. My brother used to make VR landscapes, so I've I've visited some of those. But on the advocacy side, there was this immense exhibition at the ASP, uh, an installation called Nobody's Listening, uh, to raise awareness for the Yazidi genocide by Islamic State.
4: Well, I'm hoping at some point I get to actually experience more of these things myself, but in the meantime just to kind of untangle the field and to ask some of the really basic questions which I can imagine other people like me need need to ask, we've brought together three amazing female experts. So, to start with, we have Sarah Samsky. Hi Sarah. Hi. Uh, Sarah uh, wrote in the Journal of International Criminal Justice about why seeing should not always be believing. And we'll put a link to that uh, in, the, uh, in the show notes. I know she's doing a PhD in Essex, and she's also a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley, the Human Rights Center there. And friends of the podcast, I know she's also deputy managing editor of the international legal blog, Opinion Juris.
1: And we have Britton Heller. Hi, Britton. Hi there. Britain is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an affiliate at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. She works at the intersection of uh, technology and human rights at the law, and she is an incoming affiliate at the Yale Law School Information Society Project and the Stanford Law School Program on Democracy and the Internet.
0: Yes, so I al- have, an al- do al- have an alphabet soup of letters after my name, but I think most relevant for, um, for this podcast, I... I'm a lecturer in uh, international law at Stanford, and I previously uh, worked at the ICC, at the ICTR, and um, for the United States government prosecuting genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and transnational violent crime. I just wanted to clarify
1: the alphabet soup, because I also mentioned the ICC, which I didn't clarify, which is the International Criminal Court in Britain, talked about that ICTR, which is the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda.
4: Ooh. Yeah, it is a, a lot um and we've already got two experts but we've also included a third expert in uh in this collection and we have Shireen Anlan. Uh Shireen, hi. Hey Janet, hey Stephanie. And Shireen is a creative technologist. She's a researcher and artist based in New York, and she's exploring the societal implications of emerging technology with this focus on artificial intelligence. And she's currently a media technologist, which I'm sure we'll find out about what exactly that means, um, with the human rights organization Witness, their technologies, threats and opportunities program. So, with all three, we wanted to start from the basics. We've already introduced the idea that we may be talking about digital reconstruction and about virtual reality. Can we run through with the three of you what that is and
2: maybe also what it isn't? Do you want to kick us off, Sarah? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me also. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, But here, um, I'm not so much the expert in virtual reality, so I would probably defer to the other two um, who probably have more expertise. But from what I understand it to be, it's a simulative experience that would allow users to have an immersive feel of the environment that's depicted. Um, In a criminal law context where I've been researching and international criminal law context as well, I would add it could be used to bring courtroom actors to certain places like crime scenes or conflict zones, whereas digital reconstructions can include digital evidence platforms or digital information platforms that allow individuals to explore scenes on a device, it might not be VR, but it could include elements of VR. Um, such as through panoramic photography, like where you could click through a crime scene on a device and not necessarily be in a headset. Um, And, you know, in the context of international criminal law, digital reconstructions, I think, have been used more frequently or have actually entered the ICC courtroom, um, where I think virtual reality is a much uh, newer platform um, that we should see hopefully in the future.
0: The ways that I've seen, um, and I, I don't actually say virtual reality, I say XR which is a term that means extended reality. And that encompasses a whole body of technology from virtual reality, which is an immersive headset that you wear, from augmented reality, which lets you put digital overlays on the physical world that you're experiencing, and mixed reality, which is the ability to go between the digital and the physical worlds and actually toggle between the two. It's a distinction with a difference. Um, one of them requires a lot more head, a lot more hardware, and the way that your your body and your mind react to these technologies is different. And there's also a different set of risk factors when you're looking at VR versus AR. But for simplicity's sake, I'm going to talk about XR today. The judicial world is just starting to realize that XR exists outside of the advocacy space. This podcast is actually very well-timed because two days ago, the first trial, to my knowledge, took place in the metaverse. And this was in a court in Colombia. And all of the litigants and the judge, they all agreed that they were going to meet in a virtual courtroom. And it was a dispute resolution over $170,000 worth of parking tickets.
4: Goodness that's extraordinary britain I, I i mean you you kind of you just say they
0: met in the, in the metaverse i mean what the hell i know i say it kind of blase but i i woke up before the sun got up my time to log into youtube to watch this because it just uh, the, the judge also used generative ai chat gpt to research and explain the reasoning were part of her decisions. And this is the second case that I've seen do this out of out of Columbia. To my knowledge, this was really kind of exciting, surreal, and scary, depending on where you fall on the interpretive spectrum, because it's the first time I have seen extended reality be applied in the apparatus of state power.
4: I just feel we have so much we're going to explore further. So, if I just interrupt you for a moment and just bring in Shirin and ask Shirin, okay, what's your response to enabling somebody like me to understand what we're talking about and what we're not talking about?
3: Yeah, I think the definition of XR is really good. Um, I will I will stick to VR for a second because I think what it's not, it's not the AR and it's not the fully immersive object that communicate with each other. And then in VR, there's usually the confusion between 360 video that you sit and look around and can move your head and see behind you or up or down, uh, but you cannot get close to anything. It's like a video to just play in front of your eyes. And then there is the full immersion uh, VR, which you can walk and you can touch with controller, move things around so you can really engage and interact with the environment. So I would just add those two definitions.
0: Uh, may I add one other one other point that I think is is very important to understanding immersive technologies. When people ask me to give talks about virtual reality and XR and augmented reality, the first thing that I always say is, this is not social media. And a lot of people look at this and talk about it like it is the next evolution of Facebook or Twitter. Social XR is just one way that this can be applied. But the the main difference to me is the way that your these experiences are interpreted by your brain. What I mean when I say the, the way these experiences are interpreted by your brain is when, when you have an experience in XR, it is processed through your hippocampus in the same way that you create memories. So when people have come to me and said that they were assaulted in XR, they actually have the psychological and behavioral affordances of the sexual assault victims that I used to that I used to encounter as a prosecutor both on the international and the domestic level to your brain it is not a virtual reality it is your actual reality so when somebody comes up to you and is violent or aggressive or behaves in an inappropriate manner it's um It feels like having somebody in your living room grabbing your crotch or pushing you to the floor. This means that what on social media is an issue of speech is actually an issue of behavior in a spatial computing environment. When you look at content moderation as well, on social media, you look at conduct and content. And that's how you determine it. And so it's it's often framed in the... um, under the rubric of hate speech, free speech, acceptable speech, unacceptable speech. Content moderation and program architecture in in XR is conduct, content, and environment because you have to create the architecture and really the scaffolding of the environment that you go into and your brain and your body feel like it's real. That's why it is not social media. We're
1: going to get back to also how your brain processes it with Sarah, who uh, talks about this effect of what happens to your brain when you watch VR and what's something that judges have to watch out for. Um, to take it back to the kind of courtroom experience, um, because Britain, what you're talking about is, is the way that that is being used. And, and uh, I can say indeed that it is very immersive and it's extremely overwhelming to be in a VR environment um for me it's it was even more overwhelming because my brother actually passed away, and I only got to see these v r worlds after he died and knowing that he created this landscape was very it was very soothing and beautiful and also very odd uh kind of but i for example, I know that his friends had a funeral for him in v r which I totally understood because it is a very visual space that you can have this and then you feel that you are there um so There's a lot of uh, emotions that come with being in this completely different environment now. And the court is usually, a courtroom is usually something quite devoid of emotion. They strip that kind of emotionality from a lot of things. So when we look at the way these things are reconstructed, how does that also, you know, that has an effect on judges, but it also has an effect on witnesses. Do you think, Sarah, that the, the courts are ready for that kind of technology i mean sometimes they barely understand how cell phones work so so i wonder how are they going to deal with this whole new situation
2: yeah i mean as with a bunch of other digital evidence like i'm sure like open source evidence stuff like that that it's really um, a hot topic right now there's no there's not really clear guidelines on how to deal with this stuff yet um especially at like a court like the icc um and yeah when you bring up um Mm. You know, there's some difficulties, both practically and ethically, I think that, you know, we would need to consider and also with regards to the right to a fair trial, which I can get into a bit later. But I think practically, you know, um, these tools are really great because they can bring people to places that are otherwise, you know, you might not be able to go to if the place doesn't exist anymore, if it's been destroyed or if it's not safe, especially in the context of like international criminal law, where we're dealing with a lot of active conflict zones and stuff like that. And it can really be useful to have this visual component. Um, And I think it could, if done properly, be a strong tool for accountability purposes at the ICC. But you do have concerns. You know, a lot of these, we have to remember that these aren't actual environments. It's not the exact same, although the effects could be similar as, you know, experiencing something. It's still not the exact same thing as going to an actual crime scene or a conflict zone. And so sometimes that we have this seeing is believing effect, which I take from Um, the title of my paper but this is actually an uh, an actual scientific phenomenon that people like they've done studies on judges and jurors and stuff like that and a lot of times people will place undue reliance on evidence that looks very scientific or technologically advanced and it can be difficult to remember that even though you know these reconstructions can be really well made and I'm not saying that they aren't normally but they still are prone to human error um, they can have bias coded into them um, and especially a lot of times, um, VR and digital reconstructions that have been used at courts are made in part from witness testimony. So talking to people that have actually been um, at the crime scene or experienced it. And of course, the human memory is malleable. Um, you have to be aware of ad- asking leading questions if you're going to be, you know, designing something so that it's done in a way that doesn't have so much bias. And yes, there's also ethical concerns because... As you could probably imagine, you know, if you have to talk about something over and over again to create a digital reconstruction as a witness, it can be really traumatic. But on the flip side, there's also this vicarious or secondary trauma that the makers of digital reconstructions or virtual reality could face um, when having to, you know, listen to people recount their horrific stories. Um, This is a phenomenon that's been studied a lot with open source researchers, content moderation uh, specialists. So this could also be something to be aware of when we're making digital reconstructions and virtual reality.
4: I feel that we're just, we're, we're raising so many issues already. And I don't know that's the nature of this kind of broad surface uh, podcast, but maybe Shireen, I understand that you actually have made some of these VR models. How do you go about making something for for people to experience?
3: Yeah, so I haven't made anything for court, so I haven't dealt with like ethical issue of, of accuracy in that sense. But I made like for reconstruction of uh, cultural heritage and places that don't exist or pe- places that got demolished. We can definitely walk through. It's a, it's very interesting to think of the element of like how precise and accurate you want it to be. So you can start by digital reconstruction can be I'm looking at a blueprint of a place and I'm just uh, rebuilding it in 3D. And then for on that, you can start like kind of bake or apply texture from the real world, right? So you can take photos and apply the real colors, the real graffiti if they are in place, uh, holes, and then it's kind of like shaping and bring more the data from the environment to the 3D. And then you can move to different types of techniques from scanning. So you can have different types of scanning from expensive one to very cheap one, and you can assess the accuracy based on those Uh, prices too, uh, which also provide a lot of data points and a lot of like data that you can afterward export as into a report and provide as like a authentication for the data that you just like captures. So all that scanning that moves around in a space and capture all the light, the distance from the camera to the object, rebuild that object in 3D.
4: It sounds uh, very detailed and very specific. I can only imagine it takes a long time it's it's can be pretty fast so uh, and you can
3: you can it's it's much faster to scan or use photo, uh, photogrammetry for example if you take multiple photos from different perspectives and reconstruct from photos then to reco- rebuild the object in 3D so it's much faster to just do it that way uh again then there are uh post production processes that you need to clean up the noise you need to kind of like shape a little bit holes and then you intervene, you put a human intervention in the data that you just create uh, captured. So you kind of like, it's a loose case of uh, how accurate it is and what were uh, your intervention for that. But we also have new apps. So it's keep evolving, right? Because we are just evolving all the time. So there are apps and that you can just scan with your phone. So now it's very fast and very accessible if you have new iPhone or new Android. Um, And uh, then you can just uh, upload it to your computer and fix what needs to be fixed and
1: use it. So now we heard a bit about how you make it. And and Britton, we've already heard you a bit about the things you have to watch out for. And we're going to talk more about the cons of it. But I want to ask you first, what are the pros? Why why do you think prosecutors want to use it in court? What makes it so compelling?
0: One of the founders of of the VR industry, uh, Dr. Tom Furness from University of Washington uh, describes XR as the closest thing to splitting the atom and that kind of paradigm shift. This is the most persuasive technology that, that we've ever developed. It is the best tool for learning because all of the different vectors that a person has to learn are encompassed within this experience. And for most people, you learn the best through doing. So this adds a a, a really tangible experiential aspect to any content that you're engaging with. I put my 101-year-old grandmother on the headset and we basically put her in the bottom of the sea and she got to interact with whales and fish and turtles and swarms of, of jellyfish and she said it was one of the most amazing things she ever experienced in her life. It's for me a, a transformational paradigm because, because I think because of the world building aspect of it, and it, it to me something that can impact people's emotion and cognition and and physicality uh, so profoundly deserves both our respect and appropriate caution. But for me, it, it's something that generates wonder and awe.
1: And now, Sarah, this is a wonderful immersive tool that is highly persuasive. What are the problems with that in a courtroom? What if the ICC prosecutor could make a wonderfully immersive VR experience for everybody to know just what it's like to be on the run for the Janjaweed in Darfur? What, are, what issues do you see with that?
2: Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's important to note that these are really great tools and I don't doubt that they can be great tools, Um, but because they are so compelling um, and they really do have these profound effects, like Britain has mentioned, that's what kind of makes it so, I think, scary from a fair trial perspective. And also, you know, um, like we have to recognize that this isn't really for advocacy purposes or stuff like that, but in a court of law, this is to put someone in jail, Right. So um, I do think that the fair trial concerns are really important. So, uh, I mean, like I said, I don't think to public knowledge um, virtual reality has entered the ICC courtroom yet, but there have been really impressive digital reconstructions, such as um, by Situ Research in the Mali situations um, for the al-Mahdi and al-Hassan cases. And that platform was developed especially for the Office of the Prosecutor. Um, so that's an organization, you know, giving its making a platform for the OTP, giving its expertise there. Um, and then I'm not saying it's not a great tool for the case and really helpful, but at the same time, the defense is not afforded um, nearly the same expertise. And, you know, a lot of times the defense doesn't get the best cooperation with, um, you know, technology companies or social media companies, and it could be difficult to um, acquire the expertise or, the training necessary, or the the budget to hire the experts to counter such um, compelling technological evidence. So I think this goes to the bigger issue of equality of arms between the defense um, and the prosecution at the ICC. Um, we know that the defense only has a very small fraction of the amount that the. Um, OTP has of the ICC budget. And so they just don't have the same amount of time, resources, and manpower um, to be really querying this evidence in a way that would be consistent with the right to a fair trial that's enshrined in the Rome Statute um, and is a universal human right. So yes, I think they can be really compelling, but we really need to make sure that we have these kind of safeguards for educating judges and other courtroom actors about potential biases that can be um, encoded into these tools. And yes, it just any efforts to you know improve equality of arms training um you know affording training to the defense that you know the OTP might receive um could be really beneficial in that respect
4: i'm trying to imagine some of the judges at the ICC sort of sitting with goggles on i think that uh, they tend to be somewhat on the oh, it doesn't mean to say that if you're old you can't do vr but they do tend to be somewhat on the older side and they do They aren't necessarily all completely au fait with social media, etc.
2: Yeah, I would also add that um, at the ICC in particular, admissibility with evidence is kind of strange in a sense that they kind of admit everything and then decide on the weight of the evidence in their final deliberations. And a lot of those deliberations aren't public, so we don't actually really know what they're going to be focusing on and how much weight they're going to place on that particular item of evidence. So it can also, this is a concern that's been raised. I used to intern at the IBA Hague office, for example. Um, It's a big fair trial concern because the defense can't really strategize with how to allocate its resources if it doesn't know necessarily how much weight um, the judges are going to place on something like a digital reconstruction.
4: And Shireen, I was wondering whether you also have a perspective on these risks, the general risks of of human bias and error bias, because you were talking about inserting the human in at some point in, in the model making.
3: Yeah, I think we always have the human bias, right? In every technology in and in tool we are using, that's a risk. I think even if, uh, when you bring a photography, uh a, a image to card, you have the risk of a human bias, taking that, uh, so there's like the ultimate risk of bringing the bias, but also like the, you have also the potential of bringing different perspective in VR. And of course it's depend how you do it and what the fairness of that process. But since you can walk around, I don't know, reconstruction of like a place, you don't have one angle of that piece of evidence. You have a uh, multiple angles and you can combine multiple images that have been taken from a uh, multiple humans. And so you can also uh, advocate that it's bringing more freedom in that sense to to reconstruct something in a way that is more fair.
1: And you talked about the uh, you talked about being the techie person in in the office of the prosecutor in the DOJ, and that there's one person that then gets to do all the the kind of tech stuff. Do you think that? judges will be open to kind of being trained on how to view this digital evidence and to kind of make this technological leap. What is your experience with trying to explain this stuff to uh, not so much your fellow prosecutors who, who might are are quite willing to use it, but to to judges who actually have to assess it.
0: Uh, I'm going to say very respectfully, it is like pulling teeth with all the respect I can muster. It's, uh, it's always a challenge to educate courts about new technology. Because I, I think, as uh, Sarah and Shireen said, people give undue, undue weight to new, new ways to depict information without necessarily being able to separate that from the evaluative weight of the information itself. Some of the other concerns that, that come up for me when I think about using XR in, in courtrooms are right now, um, that people people use avatars, right? The avatars are a an, a digitally animated representation of you. They it is not necessarily the same thing to me as having a um, a Zoom or a video chat based evidence, like I know is done for many vulnerable witnesses and um, and, and victims. Because the resolution doesn't pick up your eyes. There's a a theory called the the uncanny valley. And if you've seen one of the new Star Wars films, even though they made a physical recreation of Carrie Fisher posthumously, it still looks really odd. And the reason it it looks really odd is because there are so many muscles and microexpressions around your eyes. And you get so much from being able to meet the gaze of another person. You make all of these judgments about their reliability and their veracity and um and their character through eye contact and we, we lose that when we enter the metaverse at least at this point um there there are different types of programs that i've seen that that are more like holograms than like avatars but the the first court case used avatars so everyone looked like they were from pixar and it was it was a little bit like theater of the absurd to me then you flip that and it, um it might have been theater of the absurd but it, it wasn't funny uh, the reason it wasn't funny is because in at least in the jurisdiction of Colombia there is really a, a large problem with access to justice and so judges there are looking at some of the the benefits of this if people can't physically be in the same space maybe this is the next best thing
4: I'm also wondering about issues of diversity um uh within this I mean we have brought together three highly qualified women, but I'm wondering how many women there are in this area or whether it's mainly more dominated by men um whether it's very much people in the western or the northern world who are involved in in doing all the work I mean you know we, we're aware aren't we of how much bias there is in in the design of stuff. Yeah I really one
1: of the things I noticed is that this these VR headsets are giant and they fit very well on my husband's head and even on my 13 year old kind of largest a boy a male child's head but my head is a little too small for them and i have to put them really tight and things like that so it's also just designed uh not with average ladies in mind so stephanie did you feel nauseous in the headset uh, absolutely I, we did the first well uh, the first thing is kind of an in- introduction which is awesome and then i had a program because i was being all educational so i got one of those like solar system trip through the solar system and it was like need immediate um uh, uh, those uh, anti seasick pills were, were very much needed.
0: Do you know why you got seasick? Um, do you know why you got seasick? No, it's called simulation sickness. And when these devices were first designed, you 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 picked it out uh, kind of experientially. The average interpupillary distance for the average user was made for a five ten Caucasian male. That was their average user, and everyone on this call has a, sh- uh, probably has a shorter average interpupillary distance. If you've ever gone to the optometrist, the distance between your pupils is one of the measurements they take to fit you for glasses. It's like the hardware was designed to put 51% of the global population in the wrong prescription glasses.
4: And that, I assume, also applies to everything to do with VR, is
0: that that those issues are also Behind the scenes, correct. I like I've I've published on this how uh, the hardware itself was not designed to accommodate um, African hairstyles and textures, or to uh, accommodate people with disab- different types of disabilities, or ethnic and religious minorities who wear hijabs, turbans, or um, or yarmulkes. It's actually a really big problem because if the metaverse is supposed to be where we live, work, play, and maybe go to court, you need it to be accessible for all people.
4: Shireen, you're a developer, so you must also have that uh, in mind. Yeah, I wanted to add the hardware is is absolutely
3: one thing that it was uh, uh, developed and built by men, but also the computer vision, the computer graphic, like uh, mathematics is also one that was developed by majority of men. And they also, the way like uh, female and, and male uh, understand 3D and and understand the illusion of 3D is also different. So, uh, male have this like parallel effect that through that they build on or create the illusion of 3D and females have more like based on shadow and contours of the environment. So it's also the way we, the technology, the algorithm we are using in order to develop those environments are also different for genders. And also the way we are developing the landscape and the the immersive environment is also different. The way females experience environment, we are less safe in public spaces where we are having different types of reactions versus uh, male. It's all about who feel comfortable and safe and who feel like uh, they want to check, take the hats off and um, be, uh, feel safe again in their own private environment.
0: That's really astute. So it's, it's like, who would feel comfortable being blindfolded in a public space? Those are the people who primarily use VR.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. that is. A, it's a very weird sensation to have that. And I think, yeah, maybe as a woman, it taps into some basic fear or something that's been ingrained in you that you don't do that because it, you make yourself vulnerable because you can't see your environment and you're somewhere else. Uh, It's not something I think a woman would necessarily come up with as a good idea to do that in public.
2: I can't comment so much on the hardware stuff, but I can comment on diversity inclusivity more in regards to the international justice aspect. Um, When you're using these types of digital reconstructions or maybe eventually virtual reality at a court like the ICC, I think there's definitely room to both positively and negatively affect aspects of diversity and inclusivity. So on the negative side, I think digital reconstructions could contribute to this idea of distant justice, where we end up relying too heavily on a reconstruction to understand what happened and maybe not necessarily um listening to or silencing those who are most impacted by the situation. And this is a common concern that's been raised um, with in the context of open source investigations. And sometimes d- digital reconstructions, like the one that has been used for the Mali cases, um, incorporated aspects of open source evidence. So um, they use like open source photos, video, satellite imagery. And so, you know this kind of goes hand in hand with this aspect of distant justice, and you don't want to, You know, maybe not listen to those who are actually being affected by the situations we're investigating, if these are all made by people, you know, um, in The Hague or something like that. But on the positive side, if these are done with inclusivity in mind, I think if we're hiring people from um, the situation areas and really working with them to make the digital reconstructions, this could be really positive. Um, Because there's also, you know, the common criticism of the ICC is that it's like this glass box in this Western country, like in The Hague, and a lot of times they're prosecuting cases like in the Global South, for instance, and this could help to bridge that gap um, and kind of bring more people um, from situation areas to be involved in the process that maybe um, otherwise wouldn't have their voices heard if they're, you know, included in these reconstructions. And it kind of comes to mind um, this. Really cool reconstruction that Amnesty International did of a Syrian torture prison. It hasn't been used in an international court, to my knowledge, but it really stands out in the sense that it has this audio visual component. So when you're going through this prison cells, they have like recordings that you can click on from actual survivors that escape the prison. Um, And so these people are like being included and otherwise we might not have been able to hear their voices or um, it's, it is a lot more, it's a lot different than, you know, reading or like hearing about something, but actually kind of having that visual and audio component I think is really compelling. So I think it could both, you know, silence or enhanced voices, depending on the relevant safeguards that are um, paid attention to.
4: But just to say, we'll put a link to the uh, Sednaya uh, space that Amnesty has created, because I agree it's important stuff. You touched a bit upon it already, the kind of things this is used for, but
1: now I think a kind of Wrap up question for all of you is, uh, where's the focus on now, uh, on in the digital reconstruction platform in courts and and where do you see it going in the future? What do you think? Which way do you think it will go?
0: I'm hopeful that trying to help judicial advocates and adjudicators have a better understanding of both the situation and the evidence. That I think is, is the best thing that happens. I think there are secondary concerns like the ones I've talked about where if we actually move proceedings into the metaverse. And at least when I was at the ICC, we had challenges getting on the ground and, and, and having access to victims, witnesses, crime scenes, et cetera. So th- th- to me, that would be a potential positive development. However, there are foundational legal issues that I would want to see sussed out before I was comfortable with that, and those relate to jurisdiction, to venue, and to uh, victim witness protection. So until we can get to those really foundational issues, I, I would be cautiously optimistic about the use in this for um, judicial procedures, but maybe not jurisdiction and venue.
1: And Shireen, what, what are the developments that you see that could be particularly useful for for The courtroom space or maybe just in your field what what you think the big innovation will be
3: i think for advocacy there is a lot of potential i'm not sure about court again it's a different types of like uh, ethical consideration that we need to take but uh yeah to to tell the story to bring it forward to visualize what happened to reconstruct a scene to investigate to have those ref- light reflection or mirror reflection that shows what I could see if I was in the in the scene, and I can understand it from a, just a, a flat image. There is a lot of great work that is being done, in it's in like including real life sounds to a reconstruction of of uh, bombing areas and so on. I do think that it's also good to keep in mind like the metaverse question that Britain is bringing, but also like the digital twin that uh, is starting to. We also a part of our world. Like everything is like aiming to be also a digital twin of that physical element. And as we are also developing and creating architect and blue prints online, right? So it's everything is might, might not be just a reconstruction, but just it's already existing in the virtual and how we are bringing it forward to the uh, physical and telling those stories through that or involving those virtual elements uh, that already exist.
1: Sarah, do you see the ICC judges uh, uh, <laughs> conducting a trial in the metaverse?
2: Um, I, I don't. Um, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but I do see us using VR as evidence soon, perhaps, um, especially as it's used more and more for advocacy purposes. I think also as the Ukraine situation progresses, maybe at the ICC, we could see that. because um, we do have this flood of open source evidence coming in from Ukraine. I think there's going to be ways of like, you know, maybe um, presenting that in a visual way, such as through deconstruction that could come up. And I saw just today, actually, it was announced that Human Rights Watch in situ are going to launch a cool digital reconstruction of a Russian strike in Ukraine next week. Um, So I think this is going to be an up and coming thing. And if not digital reconstructions, I do think virtual reality itself could make its way into the courtroom. Like you mentioned at the ASP meeting in December, the OTP itself put on a exhibition about using virtual reality in the courtroom. So I think it's definitely um, in the front of people's minds. And, you know, I think, although we really need to approach it with caution, and I know I'm very critical of it in my article, um, I do think if done correctly, um, there's hope for, you know, really using it for accountability purposes in a meaningful way. And I also think there could be the development of new guidelines. So like as we had with open source evidence, when that really started coming to fruition, we developed the Berkeley protocol and that's really helped to assess open source evidence in trials so I, and social media evidence. And so I could see this coming into play that we could make these protocols to kind of catch the law up with where it's moving
4: thanks all three so much for for joining. At the end of the podcast, we always ask a number of different questions. And um, a couple of standard questions we have are, is there a particular court case that uh, you are particularly intrigued by, or you like chatting about, or you like teaching about that you'd like to tell us about so that uh, we can also maybe explore that in another podcast
0: sometime? Britain? I am fascinated with a preliminary holding in Panara, VHTC HTC Corporation, coming out of the Western District of New York at the end of 2022. This is the first holding to talk about accessibility in the metaverse, to my knowledge. There was a blind user who wanted to use Vibe Infinity, which described itself as the Netflix of VR. But was claiming that there were no closed captions. So he was he was unable to, to address his, his visual impairment. The company said, we, you know, We're just a platform. We we don't have any responsibility to put to put closed captions for disabled users. And the court said, actually, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you're a place of public accommodation. And you you have to do this. And they noted that this shouldn't have precedential weight going forward, but they used the the fact that Americans with Disabilities Act is saying a virtual space is a place of public accommodation is fascinating to me, and it really, really implicates the blurring between digital and tangible spaces in a way that I, I see just starting.
1: Yay, judges! Shireen, is there any court case that you or any case that uh, reconstruction you did, or a case that is going through the courts that you find particularly? Interesting, or are we just extremely boring law nerds and you don't have a favorite court case and we're weird for having one?
3: I do have a favorite reconstruction case, if that can help. Uh, It's a recover from muscle. Uh, It's from 2016. And what I like about it, uh, it's uh, ISIS destroyed a few uh, cultural heritage in Iraq, and it was reconstructed using a crowdsourced image. So. It was pretty innovative at the time to use like different types of uh, images uh, taken from different times, from different people, and reconstruct the entire uh, place.
1: One of our big things th- is that we always ask everybody that we have on what they're reading, watching, listening to. It can be legally related. It can be something that you do to not think about the stuff that you have to do for work. So we're interested in everything. If you go out gardening or you're raising the world's biggest sunflower plantation, uh, you know, we also want to know about it. What do you do to either immerse yourself in the field or to get away from all of it all?
2: I'm going to be honest, as a PhD student, I kind of really just don't want to do any additional reading at the end of the day besides what I actually have to do for my thesis, which, you know, anything related to online harm um, and international criminal law is what I'm reading. Um, There's a lot of great work, you know, I'm I'm sure you've known, you know, Digital Witness um, by some of the people at Berkeley and Essex um but yeah in terms of non-law things i'm currently watching the last of us on hbo it's a great show um <laughs> i love pedro pascal and then um to unwind i i do a lot of cycling classes um but yeah
1: <laughs> shereen
2: uh,
3: i'm also watching the last of us which i'm so, so obsessed <laughs> uh and uh all the fungi world is like something I started to kind of like dig even more because it's like about fungus um yeah I'll say that like uh kind of similar like as a researcher I don't want to read more after uh, my work but um I'm really in, uh, digging deep into all the world of generative AI and the implication of that um which is uh changing every day And there is a lot of like follow-up to do every day um yeah. And other than that, uh, I have two dogs. So I'm doing a lot of dog training and I love it.
1: Britton, do you have time for anything besides your job and your family?
0: Absolutely not. My, my daughter is six months old now and every moment with her is a joy. However, she seems to really, really like uh, sitting with me when I talk about technology, human rights and the law. So she's definitely my kid.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a good that sounds like a really good uh, a good fit.
4: So thank you all three so much for for joining in. If you just hold on a moment, we wanted to also do a shout out at the end of the podcast because we've just recently decided to get ourselves onto uh, Patreon and we've just this week got our few our first sponsors um and I we want part of our promise was to say thank you. It doesn't really matter, you know. If people just give us a a couple of euros, that's absolutely great. We're really, really grateful to have a little bit because it helps to pay for coffee. So uh, thank you for being part of our community. That is a big thanks to Philip Grant. And Reid Brody. And
1: Ranit Mishori, who's actually suggested some books for us to read and comment on and some of the books I didn't know about. So I'm really uh, thankful for that.
4: And Dinica Paradise. thank you all so much for buying us some coffees this month and uh, months in the future. So thank you all three so much for for joining in. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
3: This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in the Egg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com This show is available on every major podcast service so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.